initially when I planned on coming back into Isaiah, I was going to pick up where we left off, which would be Isaiah 11. But the last few weeks I have sort of felt stressed and pressed and a bit anxious um, in my days going on. Uh, And some of it, I know, has to do with the trip coming up next month uh, and everything that goes with going into a country that isn't really known for its friendliness towards disciples of Jesus. And then there's other stuff going on, leaving me feeling stressed, pressed, and a bit anxious. And I figure I'm not alone in feeling stressed, pressed, and anxious as all manner of things are going on in the world right now. And what we need in life when we feel stressed, pressed, and anxious is to be reminded of the greatness of our God. And best I can tell, the only real cure for feeling stressed, pressed, and anxious is by refocusing our lives from what's making us feel stressed, pressed, and anxious to putting our focus on the greatness, the goodness, the majesty, and the beauty of God. So while we are going back into Isaiah, we are jumping quite a bit ahead into Isaiah 40. Um, We will stay in Isaiah 40 and beyond at least until I get back from my trip. Open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Isaiah 40. We're going to read the first 11 verses. That should be on page 546 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I must get a stand on the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 40 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her guilt has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one calling out, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the uneven ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice calls out or a voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is as grass and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. And when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, the people are indeed grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Go up on a high mountain, Zion, messenger of good news. Raise your voice forcefully to Jerusalem, messenger of good news. Raise it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his compensation is with him and his reward before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them. In the fold of his robe, he will gently lead the nursing ewes. The title of the message tonight is Finding Comfort in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you for the privilege we have to gather, study your word, just to be together as your children and as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, as we take this time to study our word, uh, help us, Father, to lay aside the cares of life that we may have brought in and be focused on you and on what you have for us. Use this time tonight to renew our minds. Use this time tonight to lift our eyes off of the, the, the stress and the things that are going on in the world and lift our eyes to you, the great and the awesome God who rules over the nations. Let this give us peace. Let this relieve our anxiety. Let this make us bold and confident for our God. Have your way in all things tonight. Father, just encourage the discourage, strengthen the weak. 
uh, and just generally work in our lives to make us more of who we ought to be. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah 40 begins the second part of the book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 39 are mostly focused on the judgment of God. Now, there are several chapters where God pronounces judgment on several different nations uh, outside of Israel. Chapters 36 to 37 show how God and King Hezekiah deal with threats from Assyria. Chapter 38, we're told the story of Hezekiah getting sick and being almost about to die. In fact, being told to get his affairs in order for he is going to die. He prays to God, asks God to spare him. God gives him 15 years. Of his life. Then chapter 39 shows why that may not have been a good idea. Uh, we see ambassadors for Babylon. They came to visit Hezekiah and to give him presents because they had heard he had been sick. And Hezekiah, in, in what appears to be a moment of pride, he, he makes a fatal mistake and he, he shows these ambassadors all of the, the glory of his house, all of the treasures and all that he has. And so Isaiah is sent by God to to Hezekiah to tell him because he did this, the Babylonians would eventually come into the kingdom. They would conquer the kingdom. Uh, they would take his descendants out and they would make them in eunuchs and they would serve the king of Babylon. Uh, Hezekiah's uh, answer in verse chapter 39 and 8 I've always found very interesting. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace in my days. To me, seems to me, he's always always seems to me that what he's saying is... Oh, well, I'll be gone. I won't have to see it. Um, anyway, the Babylonian captivity that Isaiah is, is prophesied about there at the last and in other places, it, it wouldn't come about for about another hundred years. So the next hundred years in Israel's history would be some of unparalleled wickedness for the people of Israel. Things would get progressively worse till it resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, the destruction of the temple and the people being carried away into captivity. The captivity itself would last about 70 years where the Israelites, those from Jerusalem to Judea, would be scattered about the Babylonian Empire. Now, as I said, Isaiah 40 begins the second division of the book of Isaiah. In this section, Isaiah trans, uh, transitions from prophesying about judgment uh, to promising deliverance. In this chapter, we are in some ways transported to the future. While the message of Isaiah 40 was written during the time of Isaiah where even we have been studying at in Isaiah, it really wasn't for the people of Isaiah's time. It was a message for the Jews who would be taken into captivity in a hundred years. As God looked into the future, he knew his people in captivity would be in desperate need of a message to comfort and encourage them throughout the long and difficult years of captivity. So he had Isaiah write this message to them. God's purpose in this was to comfort his people, especially to help his people find comfort in him. Now, think about that. I want you to think about that because this is an important aspect of the whole message and everything we're going to talk about tonight. Because don't we don't want to miss the setting for when this is meant, the people that this is meant for. Right? The people of Israel, the ones that this is meant for, are in Babylonian captivity. They are in Babylonian captivity because of themselves. It is their fault. This isn't random chance and circumstance. It's not bad things happen to good people. They have rebelled against God for year upon year upon year. And they are reaping what they have sown. They are going to be scattered into captivity. 
And in the midst of of those people in that time, because of their who are there because of their poor and sinful decisions. God sent a word of comfort. God's love and his concern for his children, even his rebellious children, is something that should always amaze us. What we see in in chapter 40 is all of their comfort and all of their encouragement is meant to come because their God is great. Right. And, And our lesson for tonight is this. The greatness of God comforts the people of God. The greatness of God comforts the people of God. And I, I want to give us tonight three ways that the greatness of God comforts us as the people of God. First is we've experienced the grace of God. Now, you know, any message is going to be good when it starts out with saying that God is calling on a prophet to comfort his people. Now, as we've seen, Isaiah's messages are, are not always comforting. They're not always encouraging. They have been hard. They have been pretty straightforward, calling the people to repentance. But now God calls on Isaiah to bring a message of comfort and encouragement to this formerly rebellious people who are suffering the wages of their sin in a foreign land. Now, there are several quick truths about these first verse, first two verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her. That her warfare is ended, her guilt has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. One truth I want to see first is God is the one who wants these people comforted. This isn't Isaiah's idea to write a message of comfort to a wayward and struggling people. This is God's idea to send a message of comfort to these people. So often we are given the idea, even by well-meaning people who profess to be Christians, That there is a great change from the Old to the New Testament in in the God of the Bible. The God of the Old Testament is is angry. And he's just looking for an opportunity to smite people. Just filled with wrath. Almost eagerly smiting and punishing the people there. Then you get to the New Testament. And the God of the New Testament loves everyone. And he wants to save everyone through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have to remember is... God doesn't change, right? The God of the New Testament who loves everyone and wants everyone to be saved through Jesus is also the God of the Old Testament. And this God who does indeed have wrath, that is a real thing, wants to comfort his people in what has to be the lowest and hardest point of their lives. Second. God calls them his people. Comfort my people. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. He tells Isaiah to to comfort his people, to speak kindly to them, and he calls them Jerusalem. Now, that's significant. Because remember, they won't be living in Jerusalem at the time when this message is really meant for them. Instead, they'll be in captivity somewhere in Babylon. Despite being in Babylon... God still refers to them as Jerusalem. He wants them to understand that despite their rebellion, they are still his people. Yes, he is going to discipline them for their sins, but that doesn't mean he has abandoned them. That there's a difference between being chastised by God and being abandoned by God. And they are being chastised by God, but they have in no means been abandoned by their God. Despite their sin, despite their rebellion, God still calls them his people. This is good news for us. For despite our many sins, despite our often rebellion, despite our many failures, 
God still calls those He has redeemed through Jesus His children. This doesn't change when we blow it. We are not His children one minute and we blow it and suddenly we are not His children. This doesn't change when we are reaping what we've sown. This is, again, I think this is an important point to understand. Sometimes our lives are hard because we make it hard. We do things, we sow to the flesh, we reap of the flesh. That happens. But even in those times when we are reaping what we have sown ourselves, God is still our God. We are still His children. Nothing will change that. This doesn't change regardless of the circumstances of our lives. And then finally, God tells Isaiah to tell His people their warfare has ended. Their guilt has been removed. Can you imagine how great this message must have been to them? It must have been like music to their ears. Their warfare being over means their punishment was complete. Now they will be restored to their homeland and they will be able to worship God as they should once again. Of course, if we know our Old Testament history, we know that after the 70 years they do begin to come home. They rebuild the temple and they're able to worship God again in the ways that God intended for them to worship Him. The lesson for us in this is to remember that too, so too our punishment has been taken. Our guilt has been removed. You know, intellectually, all of us know our guilt is removed and our sins are forgiven when we repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we know this intellectually, I wonder how many of us have actually let those truths come down into our hearts and bear the fruit and the encouragement it ought to bear in our lives. I've known many genuine, deeply devoted disciples of Jesus who who just never seem to be able to accept the fact that their sins are forgiven and their guilt has all been removed. And some of them, because of this, they live this constant beat down kind of life. That they just feel they are second class citizens. That they feel that they are always what they were before Jesus saved them. They, they can't accept the full and complete forgiveness that Christ has brought to their lives. And then others, again, who are deeply devoted disciples of Jesus, but can accept the freeness of grace and the freeness of forgiveness they, they're very busy, very active in their service, conscientious in their service to Christ. But, but it's not so much because they love Jesus, though they do, but it's more an attempt to earn their pardon. That they want, they want God to see that they're worth it. They want God to see that they believe it, that they take it seriously. Look, look at what I've done, God. I, I really meant it when I called out to you. I, I really want to be forgiven. I'm doing my best, Lord. And both of those ways are miserable, miserable ways to live our lives. One of the most un, one of the most life changing truths we will ever understand is that through Jesus, our sins are fully and completely pardoned. Let me show you just two verses. There is therefore now, therefore there is now no condemnation at all. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't have time to do a deep dive into this. But I just want to point out a few things in this one verse. Therefore, there is when no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. When we get better, when we square ourselves away, 
when when we really get fully sanctified or or now in the midst of the mess of our lives as it may be. There is now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. But but notice also how much condemnation there is. Just be so to be clear, there is now a little condemnation. There is now some, but it's not a whole lot. It's not what it says, is it? There is none at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. So right now, if you have repented of your sins and you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, right now, at this moment, regardless of of the ways you struggle and the ways you fail and the messes you make, regardless of that, if you have repented and believed, there is right now, at this moment, no condemnation at all because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Listen, the, the truth is, The death and the life of Jesus does not pay the penalty for our sins, does not remove condemnation. There is no removal for what he did on the cross is a billion, jillion times better than anything we could ever do. And if that's not enough, then nothing ever will be. Also, Romans eight or Romans three tells us being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, justified being being declared by God innocent, even though we're guilty. Right? Justification is not God saying our sins weren't that bad. They were. It's not God saying that our, our sins have been overlooked because they, they, they were not as bad as other people's. That's not what it is. It, it is God looking at Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his holiness on our behalf And saying, I declare this believing sinner righteous because of Jesus. And at that moment that God makes this declaration, the righteousness of Christ is taken from him and it is put in us. It is put into our account and all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness is taken from us and it is put on the cross. And therefore, when God looks at us as believing sinners... He does not see us in light of our sins. He does not see us in light of our failures. He does not see us not in light of our past failures, but not even our current failures. He sees us in light of the righteousness that has been given to us as a gift of grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, those who believe in Jesus are free, forever free from condemnation. Because of what Jesus has done, God freely declares those who believe in Jesus to be righteous. Now, that's all in one book of the Bible. A book that we've all probably read before. Verses we have seen. But I want to ask you, if you're one who struggles, what if those things were really true? I mean... How different would your life be if you really and genuinely believed you were free, forever free from condemnation, not because of your goodness that you could work up, not because of how how diligently you worked in your service to Christ, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. How different would your life be if you Believed you were fully and completely righteous 
Not because of your good deeds. Not because of how much you you tried to be good. But just because of what Jesus had done for you on the cross. And what God declared you to be the moment you believed. How different would your life be if we just... Those are true. And they're not true just out there somewhere. They're, they're true for me. They're true in me. There is right now no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. I have been justified as a gift of God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It's all independent of, of, of me, my good or my bad works, but it's all based upon Jesus. That is a tremendous, powerful, encouraging truth to know and to embrace. Part of the greatness of God is that these things are true for those who have repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is encouraging news. There is great comfort in this. This is the kind of thing that comforts us. In the hard times of our life. This is the kind of thing that comforts us. Even when the hard times of our own making. The depth of God's grace. Is amazing. Far more amazing than I think our human minds can comprehend. And it reminds us of his greatness. And the greatness of God comforts the people of God. Secondly. We hope in the promise of God. So we've experienced the grace of God. And then we hope in the promise of God. Now the picture in verse 3 and 4. The voice of one calling out. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. Let the uneven ground become a plain. And the rugged terrain a broad valley. The picture in verse 3 and 4 is taken from the practice of eastern rulers sending ambassadors ahead to announce their coming and to get things ready for their arrival. The ruler's visit to an area was kind of a big deal and enormous preparations were made to ensure things were ready. These preparations would include having a special road built or performing significant upgrades on the existing road. They wanted the road to be as level as As it possibly could. And so what this would mean was that they would uh, fill in valleys. They would level off hills. And they would do all of this and everything that was necessary to make the trip there as straight as it possibly could. Great care was taken to free the road of any obstacles to to the ruler's entourage. Now, these verses are quoted in the Gospels to describe the ministry of John the Baptist. In John's gospel, John the Baptist uses these verses to to describe himself when asked by the religious leader who he was. John's main job was to preach repentance for the remission of sins to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. So what we see in verses 3, 4, and 5 is what I call a threefold prophecy. And I say threefold because it had three fulfillments. First... There was a fulfillment for the Jews in Babylonian captivity. God would come to them and he would reveal his glory to them by bringing them out of captivity and taking them back to their own land. 
But that wasn't the only fulfillment of these verses. Since verses 3 and 4 were taken and applied to the ministry of John the Baptist, then there was a a fulfillment at Jesus' first coming. However, this isn't the only time this prophecy will be fulfilled concerning Jesus. Because look at what we're told in verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Now the first part there, it says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Revealed. We can see easily how this relates to Jesus. Second Corinthians 4, 6 speaks about the glory of God being seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So obviously the glory of God was revealed at the coming of Jesus. But, but look at what it goes on to say. And all flesh will see it together. Well, and here's where we realize there is a even a more fulfillment than the first coming of Jesus. Because... Jesus, as active as he was in his first coming and in his ministry and all the things he did, all flesh did not see him. In fact, he was only seen by really, if you think about the the population of the world at the time, whatever it would have been, by a very small portion of society ever saw Jesus. But Jesus taught there is a day coming when all flesh will see him. Jesus said... And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then Revelation takes that. John takes that and says, Behold, He's coming with the clouds. Every every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. There is a time coming when the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it. That time will be at the, the return of Jesus. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But what I want us to think about right now. First is how comforting this must have been to the Israelites in captivity. To know that yes, they're in captivity because of their sins and their failures. And yet they still need to make themselves ready because their God is coming. Their God is not just for them in some far off sort of a way. But their God, He is going to come to them and He is going to bring them out of captivity. That would have been great news. That would have been encouraging news. It would have brought comfort to know That as bad as their situation was, it was only temporary because their God was coming. How would their God come? Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his compensation is with him and his reward is before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in the fold of his robe. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. I was really going to do this as a separate point, but it's so similar to this, I'll put them together. But the Lord God will come, but He's going to come with might. And His arm will come ruling for Him. So, coming with might, coming with His arm ruling for Him, seem to imply that the Lord is going to come and He will bring justice. That He will bring His recompense. His compensation with Him and His reward before Him. At the coming of the Lord, people would sort of get what they deserve. God would come in might because He is sovereign. And as He came, He would punish those who had tormented His people, who had oppressed them and had wickedly done things to them. At the same time, He would reward His people who had been faithful to Him as they lived in this captivity. As God comes, He would bring justice to wicked oppressors. He would bring peace and comfort to His people. When He comes, He will bring His reward with Him. All those who have labored for His name would receive a reward 
in His name. For us, this means nothing we do in the Lord's name ever goes unnoticed by God. He will feed His people like a shepherd and gather His people into His arms and carry them and lead them. This is what our our Savior will do as well. He will set aright all the things that went wrong on the day of Adam and Eve's sin. He will bring justice to the wicked and He will bring His reward to His people. The thought that one day our Redeemer is coming and He's coming for us, it should be a source of great comfort for us. This life with its pleasures and problems, its joys and woes, is only temporary. Knowing this and and taking it to heart, really taking it to heart, becomes a great source of comfort during the hard times of our life. And if we believe it and really take it to heart, then it helps change our perspective in the hard times of our lives. None probably exemplify this better than the Apostle Paul. He said our, our momentary light affliction. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into that, but you know Paul's life. Paul's life, he had been in, in a later place in Second Corinthians. He talks about he's been beaten with rods. He's been whipped. He has been shipwrecked. He has been stoned. He has done without food. He has had all manner of people hunt him down and try to kill him. Those are, those are not what I call light and momentary afflictions. Those would be life-alteringly bad things if they happened to me. But for Paul, he said they're light and momentary. Not because they weren't significant. Not because they weren't real or they weren't bad, but because he was looking at what was to come. It was producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And it did that because he was looking not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. What's seen is temporary, but the things which are not seen is eternal. When Paul looked at everything he was going through in the light of the coming of Christ... It was light and momentary. He knew that there were rewards that would be given to him from Jesus for his service to Jesus. And so all of that suffering produced an eternal weight of glory. And it could not be compared with the suffering he was currently experiencing. But it could only happen as he looked at the things which were not seen. As he looked at the thought of the coming of Christ and not at his sufferings. He says in, in the book of Romans, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be suffering, not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I love that. that there is great comfort in knowing something better is coming. We haven't been left alone in this life to figure it out. We haven't been left alone To go through it alone. One day our God is coming. And when he comes. And the glory that's going to be revealed to us. It is going to be so great. So unimaginably great. That none of the hardships of this life. Can even be compared to it. One day. The last trumpet will sound. One day Jesus will split the eastern sky. And we, along with all the others of the world, will behold him 
and all of his glory. And in that moment, on that day, we will not think even for a second about the most severe trial or hardship we have ever endured in this life. All we will think about is the greatness of his glory. And this enables us to have hope in the worst of times. Because our God is coming. God's greatness will be clearly revealed when Jesus returns in all of his glory. And the greatness of God comforts the people of God. And then finally, we experience the grace of God. We hope in the promise of God. We trust in the word of God. A voice calls out. So what shall I call out? All flesh is as grass. The loveliness is like the the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. The, The people are indeed grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. In Isaiah's day, at least in the time leading up to chapter 38, the Jewish people had a constant problem with the Assyrians. And the problems with the Assyrians ended, they had problems with the Babylonian. And really, if you know your Old Testament history, then you know the history of Israel is having problems with one nation after another. Yet the way Isaiah is wording this is that there will come a time when all of these nations will fall. They will go to the height of their power. They will collapse into nothingness. The word of God still be standing. The word of God would still be right. Again, I think this is a great source of encouragement for us in our time as well. Politicians rise. Politicians fall. Political parties rise and political parties fall. Nations rise and nations fall. But the word of our God, it stands Forever. Jesus promises us this is true. Even the heavens and the earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. This is an important certainty for us to have in our life. There is an idea in certain evangelical Christian circles today that we should sort of unhitch ourselves from the word of God. But that is just about the worst idea I can possibly imagine. If we unhitch ourselves from the word of God, we are unhitching ourselves from something that will not pass away, that will stand forever. But not only that, we are going to then have to hitch ourselves to something. What are we going to hitch ourselves to? Something that will pass away. Something that will not stand forever. Why on earth? Would we think it's a good idea to unhitch ourselves from the word of God, which will not pass away, which stands forever, to hitch ourselves to some fleeting fancy of human idea? How on earth could that be the right thing to do? It's not. It can't be. We say, well, how can we be sure the word of our God stands forever? How can we be sure the words will not pass away? Well, First, because God doesn't change. God says in Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. Since God doesn't change, he won't break his word. If he said he will do it, he'll do it. 
Since God doesn't change, his power doesn't change. If God said he can do it, then he always can do it. The immutability is what this is called. God does not change. It gives us confidence to trust in the character of God. And this trust in the character of God enables us to trust the word of God. The God who gave us the word does not change. Therefore, his word will stand forever and it will not pass away. Not only does God not change, but God cannot lie. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge have a strong encouragement to hold firmly the hope set before us. For God to say he would do something or for God to say he could do something and then not do it or not be able to do it would make God a liar. God isn't a liar. In fact, it is impossible for God to lie. Now, this is important to understand that it's impossible for God to lie. God's character is so perfect, it is impossible for God to lie. Now, what this means is it's not merely that God chooses not to lie. And so he's honest and trustworthy. That's not that's not what it says. What it says is God is so holy, so pure, so perfect. It is legitimately impossible for God to lie. Now, that distinction may not seem like a big deal, but it is. It is a big deal. And here's why. Honest and trustworthy people choose not to lie. And in fact, they may rarely lie. But they can lie. And the most honest and trustworthy person we know occasionally does lie. God, on the other hand, is not an honest and trustworthy being who chooses not to lie. But could lie if he so chose, just chooses not to. No. God is a being of absolute perfection and holiness who legitimately cannot Lie. This makes God the only being in all of existence who is worthy of unconditional trust and absolute trust to give. We can give God our unconditional and absolute confidence that what he says is right and true because he cannot lie. God being the only being who is worthy of absolute and unconditional trust shows us the greatness of God. And the greatness of God comforts the people of God. We can absolutely trust in God's word because it is as worthy of unconditional trust and absolute trust as God, as the God who spoke it is. And we come to the end, though, and we say, well, How do we end a message like this? How do we respond to this message of God's greatness? Look at verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, Zion, you messenger of good news. Raise your voice forcefully, Jerusalem, messenger of good news. Raise it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Isaiah calls on those who receive encouragement from the greatness of God to go spread this good news to others. Others. It is a call to boldly tell others about the greatness of our God. He says we're to, to go on a high mountain, to go to a place where others can see us. He says that we are to raise our voice 
forcefully. Raise it up and, and do not be afraid. So we are to go where others can see us. And we are to boldly, loudly, and fearlessly cry out, this is what our God is like. To scream at the top of our lungs about the greatness and the goodness and the worthiness and the trustworthiness of our God. And we do everything we can to spread the glory of His greatness to everyone who will listen to us. So how do we respond if we have received comfort about the greatness of God? We go out this week and we tell someone about the greatness of our God. We tell them about the greatness of His grace. And that through Jesus, there can be absolute forgiveness for anything they've done. We tell them about the greatness of His promise to return, that our God is coming. And that knowing that and believing that can change our perspective on how we live and what we do. And we tell them about the greatness and the trustworthiness of His Word. You don't have to drift through life. You don't have to make up your own ideas. You don't have to wonder what's right or what's wrong or try to guess. You can come to what the Word of God says and say, My God has said this. I can depend upon this. So let's go out this week and declare God's greatness to anyone who will listen to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, elevate our view of you until we see you as exceedingly great as you are. Let this alter our lives. Father, let us give our lives to declare your greatness to anyone who will listen. Let us rest in the greatness of your grace. Father, I I know I'm not in a room with perfect, exactly like Christ people. We're flawed. And we blow it. And sometimes we just rebel. But your grace is greater than our sin. Gosh, your word even is so bold to say where sin did abound. Grace did much more abound. Give us a greater confidence in your grace and in the blood of Christ than we do in our ability to mess things up. Father, burn in our hearts the reality that our God is coming. And Lord, let us know that our God misses nothing that we do in his name. Whether we do good or whether we suffer for doing good, you see it. And all of those things build an eternal weight of glory for us. Let us focus on the things we cannot see, not upon all the things that we can see. Father, increase our confidence in your word. Your word is right in all it says. What your word says can be in our lives is real. Your word is sufficient. Through the book you have inspired, the book you have preserved and have brought to us in our language, we have everything we need to know our God and to make him known. Father, let your greatness so fill our hearts that we cannot help but declare your glory and greatness 
all the time. Let it be something that bubbles out of from our hearts and out of our mouths at every opportunity. Make it a natural part of who we are. That when we're around people, when they see us, man, make them think they're going to tell us about how great their God is again. And let that be a true thing. Have your way. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.